once again, I'll be able to get through everything I've got. <laughs> Let me go ahead and open us with prayer. Our most gracious, loving, almighty Father, we thank you so much for your mercy and tender grace to each of us. We thank you for this privilege that we have this morning to be gathered together <clears throat> with one another to fellowship uh, as brothers and sisters adopted into the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask, Father, that you would uh, be with us, go before us in this hour. We ask, Father, that you would edify us, use this time to sanctify us to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so today we are going to do, I think, what may be our last um, bio, at least for a while. And uh, I don't know what the plan is going forward, but... We may, there are, I will say this, there are still plenty of men to talk about in the book, okay? So we have been, we have been using the book, uh, the 21 Lives of Sovereign Joy or something like that, and uh, the book covers all of these people here on the left-hand side. Uh, Based on the research that I did, I believe on the right-hand side are, are the people that we have actually done, okay? Now, if I miss somebody, I apologize. I, uh, I, I just kind of went through my notes and all that kind of stuff, and I may have missed one or two. But anyway, this is, these are the ones that we have covered over here on the right and over on the right. And so, and today we are going to cover... The last one, so we've completed this entire section under a camaraderie of confidence with uh, Charles Spurgeon. We have already done George Mueller and Hudson Taylor, and we'll refer to them briefly as we move along. Okay, but our subject today is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. This is a picture of him as a young man. This is a picture of him... Uh, in uh, prime, I guess, of his ministry. Here is a photo of him later in life. Okay? So he's our subject today. <clears throat> Let's start with um, a little bit of historical context. I don't know if you guys have ever have figured this out yet or not, but I'm a little bit get hung up on history and love it a little bit. I don't know why I do. I hated it in high school. Of course, of course, I only had coaches to teach me. I remember one guy, he would come in every day, put it, prop his feet up on his desk. He'd lean back in his chair, prop his feet up on his desk, grab his notes, read his notes, and make us transcribe them. That's what I had for American history. Needless to say. Okay. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he lived, he was born in 1834, and he died in 19, 1892. That makes him a man who lived 57 years. We're talking about a life that is, was 10 years shorter than mine is today. Okay? 
He was a contemporary of George Mueller. And he knew, knew George Mueller, and in fact, he was friends with and supported George Mueller's work. He also was a contemporary of Hudson Taylor. He knew Hudson Taylor and was one of the first uh, supporters of Hudson Taylor's ministry. Think about that. Three men that, whose lives were profound in what they did for, Christi- for Christians and for the world and what they established and the, the things that they did that carry on to this day. Three men at the same time. The sword and the trowel. Yeah. Where he, he mentions uh, both of them, Mueller, and, and he has a, an article, a paragraph about both of them. Article. Yeah. Yeah. He actually visited Mueller, and uh, he went and, and visited Mueller at one point in his life. Shortly thereafter, he founded his orphanage. Okay? Um, <clears throat> which we will get to that as well. All right. So. Um, the question I was going to ask, three men with profound influence, all right, whose fault is that? Okay. Was it the fault? <laughs> well, um, somebody has to take credit for it. <laughs> I don't know. I think somebody's, there's probably some people in the world who would call it a fault. All right. The The other thing to to take note, okay, so... The other thing to take note of is is all three of these men did their work primarily during the Victorian era. What is the Victorian era? The Victorian era was the pinnacle of British power and influence in the world. All right? They he he basically enjoyed the benefits of the contributions that the Industrial Revolution, and I'm not saying that it didn't bring a lot of other things as well, but the Industrial Revolution brought lots of benefits to society and improved the human flourishing of American, of, of not Americans, but of all peoples, okay, during its time. He enjoyed those benefits. He also was born right on the heels of the Second Great Awakening, Okay. The timing that brought these three men into Christian service and these three men whose, whose character and lives are today in my, you know, I, I, I have difficulty relating to them because they are so super so to speak, you know, came together and brought together at the pinnacle of, Europe, of, of British power and ability to, uh, to, for these men to do their work, okay, brought together again. Whose fault? All right. So let's get a little historical context 
there's some interesting facts. There's some, this is kind of interesting, so we'll just kind of run through it. In 1825, the Stockton and Darlington Railway began moving people and freight to and from the collieries near Shildon with Darlington and Stockton on the Tees in the county of Durham. All right, so that was in Britain. In America, Peter Cooper raced his locomotive. Anybody know what his locomotive was called? The what? The Tom Thumb. That's right. Look at there. Oh. Man, and I thought you were so smart. Yeah, we see who's smart here, don't we? <laughs> All right, against, okay, so anyway, he raced his locomotive against a horse-drawn stagecoach. Basically, apparently, there was a road between uh, Baltimore and Ellicott Mills, and the stagecoach driver, was they were kind of running down the track the same, and they kind of started racing. He would have won, actually, if he hadn't thrown a belt. <laughs> but he threw a belt. But the race did show the power of the steam engine and what it could be used to do, okay? Uh, in the summer of 1831, Cyrus McCormick, who was a Virginia blacksmith, demonstrated a mechanical reaper. And that would revolutionize farming in America and eventually worldwide. He got his patent in 1834. In 1837, Queen Victoria or Victoria became Queen of England, and she would rule throughout the rest of the 19th century. <clears throat> um, she was 18 years old. Uh, in 1837, the first commercial telegraph started in London, spanning 13 miles, and by 1947, there was a telegraph that went from Washington, D.C., through Baltimore, and all the way to New York. In 1826, um, yes, in 1826, uh, Joseph Nisifor Nepis took the first photograph, and in 1839, uh, Louis uh, de Grey developed the first Taguero type photo, all right? In 1852, the novel Uncle Tom's Cabin came out. It is said that this is most likely the novel that had the greatest historic impact on American society. The novel depicted the plight of a, of a slave family and was written by Harriet Beecher Stowe, who was a mother of six. In the first year, hundreds of thousands of copies were printed and ultimately millions of copies were sold. They helped solidify the opposition to slavery in the North and its success in France and England served as a break in the inclination of the aristocracy in those countries to support the South during the war. In 1859, Darwin published his Origin of the Species that same year, James Mills published On Liberty, which is a philosophical work that proposes a moral ethic, get this, based upon the happiness of the individual. Um, 
1948, Karl Marx published the, uh, the, the Communist Manifesto, and in uh, and then and then Das Kapital in 1867. In 1869, they opened the Suez Canal. In 1876, Alexander Graham Bell was granted a patent for the telephone. And in 1879, Edison demonstrated his incandescent light bulb. Okay, a little closer to home, just for some more historical context. December. Uh, or I'm sorry, May 22nd of 18, no, no, January of 1836, the Siege of the Alamo, all right? Um, sorry, having a hard time keeping my track in my notes. And uh, in May of 1843, they opened the Oregon Trail. In December... The 29th of 1845, Texas entered the United States. In 1859, they found oil in the ground. They, they discovered that they could drill and find oil in the ground in Titusville, Pennsylvania. Shortly thereafter, the whole petroleum industry began. April 12th, 1861, at Fort Sutner, the Civil War began. <clears throat> and um, it ended April 9th, 1865, at Appomattox. On 18, in 1869, the Transcontinental Railroad began running trains between Omaha, Nebraska, and Sacramento, California. Look at what's going on in the world during this time. You know, I, I think about my grandfather who came to Wheeler County in a covered wagon in early in the 20th century. He saw the advent of the automobile, of the airplane, of the jet, of the rocket, he watched a man walk on the moon, okay? But in truth, and I got to thinking, man, the 20th century, we just, just blew everybody away. But then I did this timeline, and I thought, nah, I don't know. 19th century gave, them, gave, gave the 20th century a pretty good race for its money. It was a lot of just tremendous things. Less than, think about this. Look at that. Less than, let's say, so... 1842, they opened the Oregon Trail, all right? The, so settlers are just beginning to cross the continent to try to get to, to the West Coast. And within 20, 30 years, they have a railroad in place to do the same thing. That's how fast technology was moving in those days, okay? All right. So let's talk a little bit about Spurgeon's life. 
his timeline. He was born on June 19th in 1834. And for the first 10 years of his life, he was raised by his grandparents. His father, his grandfather, was a Puritan pastor with a large library of, of Puritan works, okay? Uh, and in, in that library, and, and apparently Spurgeon was qu quite the reader. No, not apparently. I'm sorry. Spurgeon was a reader. And not only was he a reader, he was a fast reader. Not only was he a fast reader, but he was one who could retain pretty much everything he read. Okay? He loved to read. All right. And so he loved his grandfather's library. All right? His most favorite book. Anybody want to take a guess? <laughs> you know. I'm sorry? Pilgrim's Progress. He has said he claimed that he read that book over a hundred times in his life. Okay? Now, he was 57 years old. That means he had to have read it more than an average of more than two times a year in order to have successfully done that. All right. Um, though, and his father was also a pastor, and it isn't clear why he spent the first 10 years of his life. He, he, he was a he was a member of a large family, and maybe that had something to do with it. It's not clear why he spent the early parts of his life with his grandparents, but he did. Um, but he did not become a Christian until he was 15 years old. <clears throat> and he was on his way to an appointment when he got caught in a snowstorm. And so he turned off into a primitive Methodist chapel, on Artillery Street in Newton, Colchester, okay? And so you can see down here I've got a mark where this is where he was at when he, when he was converted. Um, the pastor at, the church, at that church had also gotten caught in the storm, and so he was not in, t in attendance that night. And so a shoemaker stood in who, in his own words, was really stupid, Okay? And could not even pronounce the words rightly. All right? And he stood in to preach. The text of that day, however, was Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me, and ye shall be saved, you, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none other. Y'all might want to remember that if we make it to the end of this. Um, so basically, and it, and it was in that service that uh, Spurgeon suddenly realized and understood his need and placed his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. On April on then it, things move, start moving really fast from here. On April the 4th of 1850, <clears throat> he was admitted into the church at Newmarket, which is the first church there. He was baptized uh, in the Lark River at Elsham, El 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 Ellisham or something like that. And he moved to Cambridge and joined St. Andrew Street Baptist Church shortly thereafter. 
1851, he was installed as a pastor of the small Baptist church in in Water Beach, Cambridge. And here is a couple of uh, quotes from his autobiography during that time. Did you ever walk through a village notorious for its drunkenness and profanity? Did you ever see poor, wretched beings that once were men standing or rather leaning against the posts of the alehouse or staggering along the street? Have you ever looked into the houses of the people and beheld them as dens of iniquity at which your soul stood aghast? Have you ever seen the poverty and degradation and misery of the inhabitants and sighed over it? But in a short time, the little thatched chapel was crammed and the biggest vagabonds in the village were weeping, floods of tears. And those who had been the curse of the parish became its blessing. Where there had been robberies and villainies of every kind, all around the neighborhood there were none because the men who used to do the mischief were themselves in the house of God, rejoicing to hear Jesus crucified. I am not telling an exaggerated story, nor a thing that I do not know. For it was my delight to labor for the Lord in that village. It was a pleasant thing to walk through that place when drunkenness had almost ceased, when debauchery in the case of many was dead, when men and women went forth to labor with joyful hearts, singing the praises of the ever-living God. On April 18th of 1854, um, he took a pastorate at New Park Street Chapel in London. All right. So he, he in April, so that he had been there. He had been preaching there in probation for three months. So he started his preaching the latter part of January of that year. All right. So. Let's figure this. He was converted in 1850. In 1854, four years later, okay, he's in London, and he begins serving in the church that he would serve in for the rest of his life. Okay? He's not yet. He was 15 years old. He is 19 years old. All right. That church actually had quite the pedigree. Um, it, it was a Puritan pedigree, but it had quite the pedigree. And it was a particular Baptist church. I'm sorry, I didn't have time to figure out what particular meant. But um, with, uh, and, uh, it, and it had been a rather large church at one point, but it had dwindled down to about 232 members. At some point during this time, they began transcribing his sermons. And this is partly why we have such a large volume of his sermons today. He, as a pastor, has the largest... His sermons fill 68 volumes of books, okay? In part because they began transcribing them. That that ministry ultimately grew to to they were producing 25,000 copies a week 
and they were translating it into 20 different languages. In January of 1856, he married Susanna Thompson, who had been born two years, two and a half years before he had in January 15th of 1832. On October 19th of 1856, while preaching at the Surrey Gardens Hall for the first time, someone yelled fire. The hall was, I think, at that had about 10,000 people in it when they did that. The ensuing panic left about seven people dead. It was to affect him for the rest of his life. Some historians believe, so, so one of the things that, and we will, I think, touch on this more when, a little later, but, but Spurgeon suffered from several physical ailments. He had gout really bad and Bright's disease, but he also suffered, suffered throughout the most of his working life with chronic depression. Many, some historians believe that it was this event that precipitated that problem for him. Um, it certainly impacted him the rest of his life. That same year, though, he founded... Pastors College. Um, and then the following year, I believe it was, he had two twin sons were born to him, Thomas and Charles Jr. On October the 7th, the same year. So his, his sons were not yet a month old. He preached to his largest crowd of 23,654 souls at the Crystal Palace in London without amplification. Imagine that. <laughs> That's crazy. I can't imagine that. Uh, the Crystal Palace was uh, the building that the prince... Uh, Queen Victoria's husband built for the World's Fair that was held in London a number of years prior, and it was quite, and, and it was quite the uh, it was all glass and steel, and was uh, and that probably had some of what to do with it. Okay. Um. Anyway. On. Uh, in, in 1861, March 18th, the congregation, oh, this is his kids. This is his twins, and this is his wife, Susanna. Uh, they moved to the Metropolitan Tabernacle in 1861. And there's a picture of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. He specifically, you'll notice it's very Greek in its... Uh, Exterior, and he very specifically chose that that architecture for his church. Um, he then established the sword and the trowel, which was a a a, a periodical. I, I I think it was monthly, of which he was editor of and and contributor to. Um, he 
established the Stockwell Orphanage shortly after his, his visit with Mueller. Initially in 1867, it was for 240 boys. Um, and he was able to do it because a woman who was not a member of his church unexpectedly gave 20,000 pounds. And he took that money and began the orphanage. In 1879, they established a place for girls as well. 1887 was the downgrade controversy. And this was a controversy within the Baptist Union having to do with inerrancy and the reliability of Scripture. It was apparently profoundly contentious and it took a great deal out of Spurgeon during that time. He was obviously also struggling with, with his, his gout and his Bright's disease. He gave his last sermon at uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle on June the 7th in 1891. And then he died July 30, January 31st, 1892. from complications of rheumatism, gout, and Bright's disease. The church had 5,311 members with a total. He had, during the course of his ministry, 14,460 members had come through that church. Um... So that is a timeline of his life. <clears throat> so he lived during the Victorian era. It was, it was said that the sun, during that time, the sun never sat on the British Empire. That's what I've and I was just heard that. But there's a rejoin, there's something that, that, that statement goes on to say, because even God couldn't trust the English in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> but it was during this during the Victorian era it is true that Britain was prominent across the globe okay <clears throat> and um and it was during this time that George Mueller, Hudson Taylor and Charles Spurgeon served ministered Piper makes these observations about these three men. He calls them indigenous, transforming exiles. Think of indigenous, transforming exiles. What does he mean by that? Number one, all three of these men, they had a vision of eternity that I only wish I had a piece of. They saw life through the eternal lens of God's Word and not through the temporal lens of the here and now. They lived as exiles in this world. But they lived in this world. They were Britons. They were British men doing what British men do, all right, which is getting things done. They were indigenous. 
They were hardworking. They were trusting in God, and they transformed their world. They were men of their age, citizens of a great empire, first members of the modern world. They were heir of the great awakenings, and they were evangelicals. By that, they meant, it's meant that they believed in the Bible, the cross, conversion, and activism. <clears throat> Piper also says they were modern mavericks. Mueller's large and liberal, he points to Mueller's large and liberal entrepreneurialism. Taylor, who followed his model. All right. Um, they were very unmodern from the standpoint that they did everything, that everything they did, they did without debt. This is a quote from Mueller. The chief and primary object of the work is not the temporal welfare of the children or even their spiritual welfare, blessed and glorious as it is. And as much as through grace we seek after it and pray for it, the first and primary object of the work was to show before the whole world and the whole church of Christ that even in these last evil days, the living God is ready to prove himself as the living God by being ever willing to help, succor, comfort, and answer the prayers of those who trust in him so that we may not go away from him to our fellow men, or to the ways of the world, seeing that he is both able and willing to supply us with all that we can need in his service. I would challenge us to remember this idea. For while we are not in the business of trying to transform our world, we are going to be in the business of trying to live as Christians in a world that becomes more and more hostile to our way of thinking, our worldview, and what we need to do for our families and for ourselves. We need to remember this. God is willing to provide for those who trust in him. Piper's take on Charles Spurgeon. Charles, so, so Piper ch chose Charles Spurgeon to really bring his message specifically to pastors. Spurgeon was a preacher, and he, and he basically focused upon Spurgeon's ability to do what he did in the midst of tremendous adversity. There were many things that made it possible for Spurgeon to do what he did. In the modern era of the, of the 19th century, many things had come to bear that made it possible for him to be the man that he was. But that does not mean that it did not come without cost to him. 
and to his family. <clears throat> Spurgeon, Piper talks, talked about how basically for the pastor, the heart is the instrument of the vocation. Ours is more than a mental work. It's a heart work, a labor of our most inmost soul. No matter what might be happening in a pastor's life, what struggles or suffering may be happening, either public or private, he must still preach. It isn't a question of just living through it. A pastor must preach through it. And so what begins as a, searching, as a searching introspection for the sake of holiness and humility leaves your soul for various reasons in the, a hall of mirrors. You look into one and you're short and fat. And you look into another and you're tall and lanky. You look into another and you're upside down. Then the horrible feeling begins to break over you that you don't know who you are anymore. The center is not holding. If the center doesn't hold, if there, is, if, if there is not a fixed I able to relate to a fixed thou, namely God, who is supposed to preach next Sunday? When the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, By the grace of God, I am what I am. He was saying something utterly essential for the survival of preachers in adversity. If the identity of the I... <coughs> The eye created by Christ and united to Christ, but still a human eye doesn't hold, there will be no more authentic preaching because there is no longer an authentic preacher. Where the eye is gone, there is only a collection of echoes. That's Piper. For us, I think, Let's be praying for our pastors. Let's keep them in front of the Lord. That they may remain steadfast in who they are and know what their calling is. Of Spurgeon, Piper says, he knew his spiritual condition the Puritan prescription for the remedy of his, for his sins. He had read John's, John Bunyan's Grace Abounding, and now he's referring back to those 10 years while, while Spurgeon was in his grandfather's house living practically in his grandfather's library. He had read John Bunyan's Grace Abounding, Richard Baxter's Call to the Unconverted, and John Engel's John Angle James is the anxious inquirer. But God did not open his eyes to the sweetness of the gospel until that snowy night in his 15th year. But from there, God gave waves, and this is Piper again. You can hear, you can hear Piper. Waves of blessing on his preaching. He had no formal education. Y'all got that, right? He started preaching when he was 16 years old. He took the pastorate 
when he was eight of his of the church of of Tabernacle Metropolitan Church. It wasn't that then, but he took that pastorate at eighteen. How? Because he spent all that time before. God took and prepared this man for this call ahead of time. He was self-taught. He read voraciously about six books a week. And he had a phenomenal memory. So what can we learn from Spurgeon? Spurgeon was a preacher. It was his preaching that gave his life such a powerful impact. Like I said, today, I, I may have said 68. Today, his collected sermons fill 63 volumes, currently standing as the largest set of books by a single author, author in the history of Christianity. Of his father, Charles Jr. said, There was no one who could preach like my father in in inexhaustible variety, witty wisdom, vigorous proclamation, loving entreaty, and lucid teaching. With a multitude of other qualities, he must, at least in my opinion, ever be regarded as the prince of preachers. He was a truth-driven preacher. Spurgeon defined the work of a preacher like this, to know the truth as it should be known, to love it as it should be loved, and then to proclaim it in the right spirit and in its proper proportions. And to be effective preachers, you must be sound theologians. He was a Bible-believing preacher. He held up the Bible. At one point, he held up the Bible. And I'm sorry, you're just going to have to indulge me here. These are the words of God. Thou book of vast authority, thou art a proclamation from the emperor of heaven. Far be it from me to excuse, to exercise my reason in contradicting thee. This is the book, untainted by error, but it is untainted by any error, but it is pure, unalloyed, perfect truth. Why? Because God wrote it. He was a soul-winning preacher. He and his elders, he had his elders standing around the church when he preached, ever looking for and on the watch for souls in his great congregation. He was consumed with the glory of God and the salvation of men. He was a Calvinistic preacher. Here's another quote from Spurgeon. To me, Calvinism means the placing of the eternal God at the head of all things. I look, at it every, I look at everything through its relation to God's glory. I see God first and man far down in the list. Brethren, if we live in sympathy with God, we delight to hear him say, I am God and there is none else. 
People come to me for one thing. I preach to them a Calvinistic creed and a Puritan morality. That is what they want, and that is what they get. If they want anything else, they must go elsewhere. <laughs> Love it. <clears throat> and he was a hard-working preacher. No one living knows the toil and care I have to bear. I have to look after the orphanage and have charge of a church of 4,000 members. Sometimes there are marriages and burials that have to be undertaken. There is the weekly sermon to be revised, the sword and the trial to be edited, and besides all that, the, a weekly average of 500 letters. Email, guys. How many of y'all get 500 emails a week? I can tell you, I do. It's overwhelming. Okay? And I don't answer all 500, I promise you. Most of them get filed. 500 letters to be answered. This, however, is only half my duty, for there is in, are innumerable churches established by friends with affairs with which I am closely connected, to say nothing of the cases of difficulty which are constantly being referred to me. He, goes, he, said, he also, also said, If by excessive labor we die before reaching the average age of man, worn out in the Master's service, then glory be to God. We shall have so much less of earth and so much more of heaven. It is our duty, and this he gave to in his lectures to students, it is our duty and our privilege to exhaust our lives for Jesus. We are not to be living specimens of men in fine preservation, but living sacrifices whose lot is to be consumed. I would say he lived that very much himself. Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect. 2 Corinthians 1.16 If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but are not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, 
but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. I said, Spurgeon had an eternal vision. I believe these are the kinds of things that drove his life. He noted that satisfaction with results will be the death knell of progress. No man is good is, is good who thinks he cannot be better. He was also a maligned pastor, preacher. He knew, he knew the everyday homegrown variety of frustration and disappointment from lukewarm members. He also knew the extraordinary calamities that befall us once in a lifetime. And by that he was referring to the fire panic at Music Hall. Spurgeon also knew the adversity of family pain. Spurgeon's wife, Susanna, after giving birth to the twins, had some sort of medical complication. They don't know exactly what it was. But she underwent a surgery for it that then went badly wrong. Basically, they call it a botched surgery. It left her an invalid for the rest of her life. She rarely had the opportunity to leave home. She was in so much pain. She rarely heard him preach. That was the world that he worked in. He also, as, as has already been mentioned, suffered from gout, rheumatism, and Bright's disease. He also, because of his greatness, underwent tremendous... There was a lot of public scrutiny upon him because of his popularity. And of course, there were those who despised him. And so he endured, for his lifetime, public ridicule and slander of the most vicious kind. And he also struggled with depression. This is him. Causeless depression cannot be reasoned with, nor can David's harp charm it away by sweet discoursings. As well as fight the mist, as with this shapeless, undefinable, yet all beclouding hopelessness. The iron belt which so mysteriously fastens the door of hope and holds our spirits in gloomy prison needs a heavenly hand to push it back. I think those are the words of a man who dealt with deep depression. Most of us struggle with dis discouragement, and for some, it takes them into the dark prison of depression. Most of us have times when we wonder if who we are is what who we should be. 
Most of us wear down and grow tired and weary sometimes to the point that it affects the quality and productivity of our work. Many of us experience long periods of spirit, in a spiritual wasteland, our hearts numb to the spiritual nourishment that we receive, feeling as though we are just going through the motions. And I dare say, most of us struggle too with our seeming ineffectiveness in presenting the gospel and winning souls to Christ. These are all issues that Spurgeon can speak to. For though he was a giant of a preacher in his time or any other time, he was still just a man, seeking with every fiber in his body to please his Lord. Spurgeon saw his depression as the design of God as the design of God for the good of his ministry and the glory of Christ. And he found at least three different purposes. One, it kept him humble. Two, it allowed him to understand and preach with empathy and real effect to those who also wore the change in horrible darkness. And it brought with it prophetic promise of better days. It would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by His hands, that my trials were never measured out by Him nor sent to me by His arrangement of their weight and quality. Think of the trust in His God that he expresses here. I am afraid that the grace that I have got of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. But the good that I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. Affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house, it is the best book in a minister's study library. Spurgeon supplemented his theological survival strategy with God's natural means of survival. He used his use of rest in nature. It is wisdom to take occasional furlough. In the long run, we shall do more by sometimes doing less. On and on and on, forever without re recreation may suit spirits emancipated from this heavy clay. But while we are in this tabernacle, we must every now and then cry halt and serve the Lord by holy inaction and consecrated leisure. I like that. Holy inaction and consecrated leisure. I like doing lots of that. Let no tender conscience doubt the lawfulness of going out of harness for a while. Spurgeon consistently nourished his soul by, the commun by communion with Christ through prayer and meditation. Never neglect your spiritual meals or you will lack stamina and your spirits will sink. Live on the substantial doctrines of grace and you will outlive, outwork those who delight in the pastry and syllabubs 
of modern thought. Above all, feed the flame with intimate fellowship with Christ. No man was ever cold in heart who lived with Jesus on such terms as John and Mary did of old. I never met a half-hearted preacher who was much in communion with the Lord Jesus. Spurgeon rekindled his zeal and passion to preach by fixing his eyes on eternity rather than on the immediate price of faithfulness. So from 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Speaking to one of his pastor's conferences, O oh, brethren, we shall soon have to die. We look each other in the face today in health, but there will come a day when others will look down upon our pallid countenances as we lie in our coffins. It will matter little to us who shall gaze upon us then, but it will matter eternally how we have discharged our work during our lifetime. Meditate with deep solemnity upon the fate of the lost sinner. Shun all views of future punishment, which would make it appear less terrible. And so take off the edge of your anxiety to save immortals from the quenches of flame. Think much also of the bliss of the sinner saved. And like holy Baxter, derive rich arguments from the saints' everlasting rest. There will be no fear of your being lethargic if you continually, you are continually familiar with the eternal realities. Spurgeon has settled who he was. and would not be paralyzed by external criticism. And Spurgeon found strength to go on preaching in the midst of adversity and setbacks from the assured sovereign triumph of Christ. Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. 
We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, our Lord. In our moment, we look at the political and cultural landscape, and we are in almost, I at least, am almost in despair. The Puritan worldview that seemed to inform America's founding has long since disappeared from the rearview mirror. The pace with which we see more, the moral fiber of our culture eroding to the point that what was once immoral is what is moral, and what was once moral is now immoral. And it's far too easy to become prey to fear and resignation It is in these moments we need to hear the words of this preacher so disparaged and maligned by some in his day for his words remain applicable to our time as they did in his. You never met an old salt down by the sea who was in trouble because the tide had been ebbing out for hours. No, He waits confidently for the turn of the tide, and it comes in due time. Yonder rock has been uncovered during the last half hour, and if the sea continues to ebb out for weeks, there will be no water in the English Channel, and the French will walk over from Shoreborg. Nobody talks in such a childish way, for such an ebb will never come, nor will we speak as though the gospel would be routed and eternal truth driven out of the land. We serve an almighty master. If our Lord but stamps his foot, he can win for himself all the nations of the earth against heathenism, against Mohammedism, against agnosticism, against modern thought, and every other foul error. Who... Is he that can harm us if we follow Jesus? How can his cause be defeated? At his will, converts will flock to his truth, as numerous as the sands of the sea. Wherefore, be of good courage. Go on your way singing and preaching. The winds of hell have blown. The world its hate hath sown, yet it is not o'erthrown, hallelujah, for the cross. It shall never suffer loss. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. We're done.